0: All right, we're going to read some scripture this morning, and uh, this is from Acts chapter 17, and verses 22 and 23, just a little segment of our passage this morning. So you follow along as I read from uh, Acts 17, and uh, this is Paul, and he's in the city of Athens, as we're going to see in just a a little bit here. Uh, Dr. Luke writes, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people I see that in every way you are very religious, for, as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what i 'm going to proclaim to you, and uh, we 're going to look at how Paul proclaimed uh, his message to the uh, people at athens so let's uh, let 's pray and ask God to uh, be with us this morning, Lord. Uh, thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus. That, uh, 2,000 years ago, uh, you gave a victory cry to Telestai. It is finished. You paid the price for the sin debt of the world. And thank you that as we recognize our need of, of repentance and the fact that we can't make it to heaven on our own, uh, thank you that when we put our faith and trust in you and what you've done for us, that uh, we pass from death to life. And we do have victory in Jesus. Lord, thank you for what that means, not only for our lives today, but for the hope that we have in the future, that um, our citizenship is in heaven, and thank you for that. So bless us now as we look into your word. May the Spirit of God lead us and speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're in uh, the book of Acts, and we're following Paul's missionary journeys, and uh, we are in the middle of missionary journey number two. And remember the background of this, that after Paul made his uh, first missionary trip, he wants to go back and visit the churches where they had visited. And uh, so he suggests that him and his partner Barnabas go back and visit those churches. And they had a little bit of a disagreement. So uh, they parted ways, and there's two missionary trips instead of one. And uh, so I think you have a map uh, in your bulletin of where we've been so far. And uh, study uh, uh, Paul started out on his missionary trip in Antioch, and then we traced his uh, way to Philippi, and then last week uh, to Thessalonica and Berea, and then he makes his way down to Athens. So I think we've got a video this morning, and uh, we're going to just take a five-minute clip. And uh, isn't it great with? Uh, technology, we can take a trip to Athens, and this will give us a little bit of background to uh, our passage this morning, and then we'll jump into it.
1: The city of Athens was a metropolis of the ancient world and when Paul arrived here, he would have seen everywhere statues of gods and deified heroes of history. The Greeks were a people who loved poetry, philosophy, sculpture, architecture with the arts and sciences both equally revered. Paul was alone when he arrived here but despite his feelings of loneliness, he was not idle but actively sought out seekers for truth. Paul went as his custom was to the synagogue, but also to the marketplace where he met certain philosophers of the Epicureans and Stoics. It is believed that here in the ancient Roman agora, Paul would have come and reasoned. Even though they immediately disregarded Paul's teachings, he slowly gained their respect as they realized that his knowledge, intellectual power, logical reasoning skills and oratorical skills were superior to theirs. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he was able to meet his hearers where they were and soon gained an opportunity to speak in one of the most sacred spots in Athens, Mars Hill. Across from the Acropolis here on Mars Hill was a place where matters connected with religion could be carefully considered. Away from the hustle and bustle of the marketplace, Paul would be able to speak without interruption. Paul had no doubt caused quite a stir when he came to the city and he was now surrounded by poets, artists, philosophers and scholars as they wanted to hear what Paul had to say asking what is this new doctrine and what does it all mean? As Paul prepared to speak, he sought to find some connection with his hearers and started out by talking about the altar dedicated to the unknown God. He said that they ignorantly worshipped this God, but then he started to tell them who God is. Guided by the Holy Spirit, he did not needlessly irritate his listeners or directly attack their gods, but tactfully and with skill, he drew their minds away from their gods to the true God who was unknown to them. He then shared a truth that was revolutionary at the time and something that humanity still struggles with today, that this same God created the whole human family and that all men are created equal. Paul appealed to them saying that at times of ignorance, God winks. But when we come to a fuller understanding of things, there is a greater level of accountability and God asks us to repent. Paul then pointed toward the judgment and the assurance that Jesus, who was raised from the dead, gives. At this point, it brought an end to Paul's speech and his labors here in Athens. As some laughed and others said, they would hear him again later. Ultimately, they rejected what Paul presented. And though they boasted of a refined culture and being educated, they turned their backs on what Paul taught. His work was not completely in vain, as the Bible records that one of its most prominent citizens, Dionysius, along with some others, accepted the message. Even though Paul's work was not numerically successful, his labors here provide an example of how to tactfully and with skill share the message to a learned audience. Taking the simple gospel message and sharing it in a learned environment is not easy, but it's something that must be done. May we have tact, skill, and patience as we witness to whomever God calls us to, whether they're rich or poor, simple or educated.
0: Well, there you took a trip to Athens this morning, and uh, that gives you a little overview of uh, where Paul was and where he ministered. So we're going to look at our outline this morning and then take some life applications as we jump into the text here. So let's, uh, Acts 17, we're going to start in verse 16. Uh, Paul is uh, in Athens, and we see that Paul's very distressed, Paul's great distress. Verses 16 and 17, uh, Dr. Luke records, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, that's Silas and Timothy who are left in Berea, and we're going to join him later while he's waiting for them He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so here is Paul distressed. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Well, Paul's in Athens, and he arrives, and he begins to walk around the city. As he walks around the city of Athens, what does he see? He sees statues, he sees temples, he sees religious artifacts all over the city, and he's greatly troubled. He's greatly troubled. Uh, The Greeks worshipped many, many gods, and here's just a, a few of the names of the Greek gods, and some of these might sound familiar to you. I just jotted them down. Apollo, the god of music and poetry. Kronos, the god of time. Dionysus, the god of the grape harvest. Eros, the god of love. Helios, the god of the sun, Hypnos, the god of sleep, Pan, the god of nature. They worshiped Poseidon, the god of the sea, Thanatos, the god of death, Zeus, the god of the sky and lightning, and on and on. The Greeks had many, many gods, and so Paul's walking around, and he's seen altars, he's seen temples, he's seen statues to all of these gods. And the text says that Paul is greatly distressed. The New Living Translation says he's deeply troubled. He's troubled because he sees people who are very religious, people who are seeking truth, but they're worshiping false gods. This is how the worship of idols is described in Psalm 115. The psalmist writes, Our God is in heaven, and he does whatever pleases him. But their gods are silver and gold and made by human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear, and noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. Feet, but they cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. And so Paul walks around, and he sees a... A very religious city, but they're worshiping false idols and false gods. The same could be true of our culture today. See, the question is not, are you a worshiper? But the question for our culture today is, what do you worship? And we may not have statues and temples of stone that we worship, but believe me, our culture worships other things and they have idols in their life. It might be money. It might be success, it might be family, uh, many, many other things. It might be the physical body. Uh, so Paul looks around, and he's greatly distressed because of all the various idols. And in verse 17 says he takes a two-pronged approach. In the other cities that he visited, he would go to the synagogue and start in the synagogue. And Paul did that as well in Athens. But it says that he also went into the marketplace. And so Paul's in the Agora, and he's in the streets, and he's on Saturdays and the Sabbath, and the rest of the week he's in the streets, and he's beginning to engage in dialogue with people. And beginning in verse 18, we see that Paul finds some philosophers that he begins to engage with. Paul's debate with the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers And so let's uh, pick it up in verse 18. It says a Greek group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul. Now the Epicureans were atheists. They were materialists. They worshiped pleasure. They thought that when you die, that was it. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So you might as well enjoy all that you can in this life. Uh, The Stoics were uh, quite a bit different. They were pantheists. They believed that everything is God, and God does not exist as a separate being, but everything around them has God in them, and they were very moralist people. And so Paul's debating with both of them, and they're very curious about this new philosophy that Paul's beginning to talk about. And so it says, Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And so Paul's interaction with the Stoics and the Epicureans at least raises their curiosity, and they want to know more about what Paul is saying. And so here we see, as we move through our text, Paul's declaration of the gospel at the Areopagus, verse 19. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Now what was the Areopagus? It was located northwest of Athens. It was on a small hill and overlooked the city, and that's where people gathered to uh, debate, to talk about religion to talk about politics, to talk about uh, the news of the day. That's sometimes where trials were held. And so Paul is invited to go to the Areopagus. Now, um, in Paul's day, it was also called Mars Hill. And so here is Paul. He's at Mars Hill. He's with the philosophers, the educators, the poets, the artists of the day. And now they're engaging in conversation, and they want to hear more from Paul. And Paul has a wide-open door to share the gospel. So let's look at how Paul handled this. And um, we'll pick it up in verse 19. It says, they took him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. If we were to translate that today, they spent all their time on Facebook. <laughs> you know, what's going on? What's this person think? What's this person think? And and it was this uh, open forum where you would go and discuss ideas all day long. So how does Paul present the gospel to the Athenians, to the philosophers? And uh, Paul's remarkable in the way that he handles this, and it's a good role model um, for us. So let's look at verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, notice where Paul starts. He does not start with condemnation, he starts with commendation. He's trying to build a bridge to the people that he wants to share the truth with, and he doesn't want to he doesn't want to turn them off from the very start. So he starts with commendation. What does he say? I've walked around your city, and guess what? You are very, very religious. He's commending them for being religious and then he says. I walked around and looked carefully at your object of worship. I even found an altar in this inscription to an unknown God. You see, the Athenians were so religious and so concerned about gods that they didn't want to offend any God. And so they said, Well, let's build an altar. And maybe we've forgotten one of them. So here's an altar to an unknown God. And Paul sees that and he picks up on that and he says, you know what, here, I'm to tell you, I'm here to tell you about who this God is, who the unknown God is. And so Paul uses that as an open door, and now he begins to proclaim to them the true God. And that's found in verse 24. Now, where does Paul start? He starts with creation. He starts at the very, very beginning, because these are people who uh, don't have the Scriptures, aren't vers- well-versed in truth and biblical knowledge, so he starts at the very beginning. Um, Ethnos 360, formerly New Tribes Bible Institute, uh, specializes in preaching Christ where Christ is unknown. And so they specialize in going to remote places in the world where you... Uh, interact with oftentimes tribal people, and your job then is to uh, adopt their culture and become friends, translate the scriptures, and then share the truth with them. And many of the missionaries that we support over the years have have done that. Uh, Isn't it interesting, and I've heard this from the uh, uh, missionaries of Ethnos 360, that no matter where they go, even to the deepest parts of the jungle, they find tribal people who are worshiping something, who have some idea that there must be a creator out there, and so we must try to worship someone or something. And so Ethnos 360 comes in, and they translate God's Word, and and uh, then they begin to take them through lessons. And I've got one of their their books here that they... Uh, uh, maybe not using in that setting, but they certainly teach this in their school. Uh, firm foundations. Where do these from creation to Christ? And so that's where they that's where they start, and that's where Paul started. What does he declare? Verse twenty four: The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and He does not live in temple built by hands. So Paul starts out by talking about. The creator, this unknown God that you have this altar to, he's the creator of the universe. He doesn't dwell in buildings. He doesn't dwell in uh, places that were made by people's hands. Reminds me of Solomon's prayer when they uh, dedicated the, the temple after Solomon built his temple in 1 Kings 8.27, and Paul prays a, pray, a prayer of dedication, and he says, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less the temple that I have built. And so Paul starts by talking about God as the creator, and then he says God is the sustainer of the universe. Verse 25, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God is not only the creator of life, but God sustains life. One of the things that I don't don't do it every morning, but I was watching a a video of a pastor by the name of Ed Dobson who pastored Calvary Church for many years in Grand Rapids, a very large church in Grand Rapids. Uh, Ed Dobson was diagnosed with MS disease and, I passed away a number of years ago, but I was watching one of the uh, video clips that he did before he died, and here is uh, Ed Dobson struggling with um, MS and all that that entails. And he says, you know what I start every day with? I start every day with this. Thank you, God, for waking me up this morning. And uh, that's a good way to start the day, isn't it? That the only reason that we're alive and waking up in the morning, why? is because God allows us to. And Paul says, God is the sustainer of the universe. He gives everyone what? Life and breath. He goes on to say, from one man he made all the nations. That was Adam. That they should inhabit the whole earth. He's marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. And then Paul does something very interesting here he quotes their own poets. Uh, He quotes two philosophers uh, that they would have been very familiar with. For in him we live and move and have our being. That's from a Cretan philosopher by the name of Epimendus. And then um, the next part of the verse says, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul's saying, even your own poets and philosophers recognize There's a God who created the world. In the past, verse 30, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people to repent. So now Paul begins to uh, really hone in here on the gospel message, and he talks about three very crucial truths as he presents the gospel to the Greek philosophers. He talks about repentance, he talks about judgment, and he talks about the resurrection. And so, uh, Paul says in verse um, 30, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so, Paul talks about repentance. Paul talks about hey, there's a there's a day of accountability. there's a day of judgment someday, and the judge is going to be the one who God raised from the dead, and it's his Son Jesus. Now the Greeks didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, the Greeks believed that the body itself was was evil and they had a system of dualism and that material things were evil. and so they were repulsed by the idea of the bodily resurrection. And yet, Paul shared the truth of Scripture with them in spite of that. And what was the response? Well, let's look in verse 32. as It was a divided response, as we heard from the little video clip. Three responses. This is when they heard about the resurrection of the dead. Some of them sneered. The New King James says, some of them mocked. <laughs> they began to laugh at Paul when he talked about the resurrection. They said, this is ridiculous. They they made fun of Paul and they mocked Paul. But there were others, verse 32, that said, we want to hear you again on this subject. So some mocked and laughed at Paul. Some had their interest peaked and they're like, we need to hear more about this. The good news is that some believed. And Dr. Luke records that for us. It says some of the people... At that point, uh, Paul left the council, verse 34. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And So thank God that there was a few people that responded to the gospel message. Now, we don't know whether a church started in Athens after Paul left. Many of the places that we're, we're looking at, uh, we know that churches developed there. Uh, Paul went to Philippi. We have the book of Philippians. There is a church there. Paul went to Thessalonica. We have First and Second Thessalonians. There is a church there. Paul goes to Athens, and uh, there's no letter to the church at Athens, but there's a handful of believers—Dionysius, Damaris, and some others—that came to faith in Christ because Paul had the boldness to proclaim. The gospel. Well, that's a quick overview of uh, Mars Hill and Paul's message in Athens. And this morning, in our last uh, 10 or 15 minutes, we want to just think about how does this apply to us today? And what are some life lessons that we can learn uh, from following what, what Paul did? So let's look at three of them, and uh, here is the first one. Lesson number one is the burden for lost people should move us from compassion to action. That the burden for people who don't know Jesus, who who are, are, are lost, should move us from compassion to action. And so here's Paul. He's in Athens. He's walking around the city And it says he's greatly distressed because he sees people who don't know the true God. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? Paul says, hey, we we need to just not only have compassion for the lost, but we need to translate that into action. And so that's what Paul does. He's going in the synagogue. He's preaching Christ. He's in the marketplace. He's preaching Christ. He's at the... Areopagus, or Mars Hill, and he's preaching Christ. But I want you to catch Paul's burden for the lost. It says he's greatly distressed. He is deeply troubled. Um, Paul's probably had a hard time sleeping at night after he was in Athens. It's a burden for the lost and for for, uh, people who don't know truth. And Paul doesn't just feel it, but Paul That takes action. The words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 give us a picture of our world today, part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has entered through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many people enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. What's Jesus say? There's two gates, there's two roads, and there's two destinations. There's a broad gate and a broad road, and many people are on it, and it leads to destruction, separation from Christ in a place called hell. But there's a narrow gate and a narrow road. There's only a few on it, and it leads to life, eternal life. And so the burden for the lost should move us from Compassion to action. Paul talks about a twofold motivation that motivated him to share the gospel. It's found in Second Corinthians, chapter five, uh, in verse eleven and verse fourteen. Uh, Paul's talking about the ministry of reconciliation. He says, "Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord." Some translations say, "Since we know what the terror of the Lord is like." We persuade men. We share God's truth with men because there's a heaven to gain and a a hell to shun. And then his other motivation, verse 14, for the love of Christ compels me to share the good news. And so the burden for the lost should move us from compassion to action. Now, what does that look like for you and me? And I'm going to suggest three things. Uh, Number one, prayer. Number one, prayer. Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38. Jesus sees the crowds of people. It moves him. He sees them as uh, like sheep without a shepherd. And in verse 36, it says he had compassion on them. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So what's Jesus tell his disciples to do? You know what? We need workers. We need people who are willing to, to go into the, the field and reach people for Christ. And so here's one thing you can do. This should be on our prayer list. Lord, would you raise up people? Would you raise up missionaries? you raise up even people in the local church that will do his work and take the good news of the gospel wherever they go? Last week we had Jocelyn Boot here, raised in Manchester, missionary pilot, crucial role in getting the gospel out, Uh missionary pilots. Thank God for people like Jocelyn Boot. And so the first thing we can do, and um, I'll ask you, when was the last time we prayed that God would would Send out labors into the harvest field. The harvest is plenty as the labors of you. That's that's one thing. Secondly, partner, uh, Paul writes to the book of uh, Philippians and he says, "I thank you for your partnership in the gospel." What were they doing? The Philippian church was praying for Paul, but they were also supporting him financially. And so what we can do and what we have done and continue to do here at Community Bible Church is we have 13 missionary families that we've partnered with, uh, that we pray for, that we support financially, what, to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. But the third thing that we can do is we can proselytize. Now, what does it mean to proselytize? It simply means to witness, to share, to share our faith. Romans chapter 10 says, how are they going to hear the gospel unless somebody tells them? Unless somebody tells them. And so praying that God would send missionaries and people into the harvest field, yes, we need to be doing that. Uh, partnering with missionaries and supporting them financially and praying for them, yes, we need to be doing that. But we also need to be, what, sharing our faith in our own Jerusalem. Jerusalem the great commission take the gospel to the ends of the earth acts chapter 1 verse 8 as we looked at the outline of the book of acts uh, you will be my witnesses where jerusalem it starts right where we live judea samaria and the ends of the earth there's a little chorus in our hymn book i love the words to it it's really a prayer and this is what it says lord lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me and may i nobly do my part to win that soul for thee it's a prayer like god would you would you lay somebody on my heart whether maybe it's a family member maybe it's a neighbor maybe it's a coworker so that i could share the gospel with them my normal pattern on Sundays is to get over here early and turn up some heat and turn on lights, but I also stand in front of the pulpit, and if you get here really early, you'll probably think, what's he doing up there by himself at the pulpit? And I, I just go through my, my sermon in, in my mind, not audibly, but just allow the Spirit to, as I look at my notes, walk through my sermon mentally, and uh, when I got to this point, um, The Spirit of God said to me, well, you know, Ron, who who are you going to pray for? You can't tell the congregation to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. And so all of a sudden I thought like, well, God, who can I, who can you put on my heart to share the gospel with? And so let me tell you who that person is. You don't know them, and I just just met them the last couple weeks. You know that the MEC, some of you know this, have been putting internet all through this area, and thank God we've connected with that through the hard work of some folks and have a much better reliable internet connection through MEC. And so uh, you see their trucks and their workers all over, and uh, uh, so our church is is open, and I'm here a lot during the week, and uh, the guys uh, know that there's not too many bathrooms out there if you're working outside, and so we've said, hey, the church is open, and you want to use our bathrooms feel free to and so uh, that's kind of been happening regularly and so in the last two weeks I've met a fellow by the name of Larry. Larry works for MEC. <laughs> he's he's all bundled up. He's been out in the cold and he's, I'm here to use the bathroom and so I chatted with Larry and then I kind of got the feeling that he kind of wanted to stay around just for a little bit because it was warm in here. <laughs> so he came down the hall and I'm in my office and uh, he sees I'm wearing a, a Cleveland Browns sweatshirt with the Cleveland Browns symbols, a football fan, Cleveland Browns. Yeah, yeah. So I start talking about the Lions and sports and just make that brief connection. And and uh and so um I think I'll be seeing I said, You guys still got a lot of work to do in this area? He says, Oh yeah, we'll be here for a while. And and uh so I know I said, Okay, we'll see you next week, Larry. And all of a sudden, God said to me you need to share the gospel with Larry. There's an open door right there. So I've got on my desk a piece of paper, Larry's name, Steps to Peace with God. And next time Larry comes in to use the bathroom this week, I'm sure he will, (laughs) I'm going to share Jesus with him. And so... The burden for the loss should move us from, what, compassion to action as we pray, as we partner, as we share our faith. Secondly, life lesson number two, in sharing the gospel, our message does not change, but our methods do. In sharing the gospel, our message does, Paul did not change the message, he talked about repentance, he talked about judgment, he talked about resurrection, But Paul changed his method, and when you study Paul and his missionary journeys, when he's in the synagogue, he's quoting a lot of Scripture. Because what? Those people knew the Scriptures. They were well-versed in the Old Testament. When he gets to Mars Hill, the intellectuals and the philosophers and the poets, they don't know anything about Scripture. So Paul doesn't quote Scripture. But he tells them the truth of Scripture, and so in sharing the gospel, our message does not change, but our methods do. So what we need to do is we need to to, to listen to people, and that's what Paul did. He he found a, a point of connection as he he walked around the city and he learned their culture, and he says, "Hey, I want to tell you about the unknown God that you have an altar to." You listen and you learn. And then, as Paul did, you lovingly share the gospel. And so uh, the methods, uh, the message doesn't change, but the methods change. Um, years ago, and I'm talking, I've been in a church my whole life, but back in the 60s, a lot, a lot of churches would go door to door, knock on people's doors and and, and try to engage or uh, in conversation, Um that that still could happen, but maybe in our culture today, people are not as receptive to who's this stranger coming to my door. But there's lots of other avenues for the gospel. <laughs> if Paul was around today, he'd be on the Internet sharing Jesus. I mean, uh, Paul was going to look for every avenue he could to, to share, uh, share Jesus and share his faith. And so uh, the message doesn't change, but the methods do. Lastly, and then we're done this morning, uh, life lesson number three is this. There is a set day, a coming day, of judgment and justice. There is a coming day of justice and judgment. If you've watched uh, the news any time in the last number of years, uh, when there's been injustice, whether it's been with... um, A police officer that maybe wrongfully murdered somebody in people's eyes. And, uh, there's groups of people that are chanting, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace. I've got good, I've got news. There's a coming day of justice because Jesus Christ, the judge, James says, is standing at the door and he's coming back and he's going to judge the world and justice someday will be accomplished. Now we may not we may not see it in our, in our lifetime if somebody's done injustice to us but I guarantee you that that just that injustice will be dealt with. There's a day of accountability. There is a final exam coming. You know, in college there's a there's a great difference between uh, uh you can audit a class in college and when you audit a class it means you just kind of sit in, you take notes but you're not graded. There's you don't have to take the tests. Uh, there's a difference between someone who's auditing the class and someone who's taking the class for credit. What's the difference? Hey, there's a final exam. <laughs> and the Scripture says we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, for the believer in Jesus, uh, that's the bema seat judgment, and we're going to be uh, judged by um, how we've invested our time, talent, and treasure that God's given to us. Uh, That judgment will be so thorough that Jesus will not only judge what we do, but he will judge why we did it. (laughs) He knows the motives of our hearts, and that's how we'll be judged, and we will either suffer loss of reward or we'll gain great reward. And that's what we should be living for, As uh, have our eyes focused on. Paul says we make it our goal to please him. But there's also another uh, judgment for the unbeliever, and that's called the great white throne judgment. And that's found in uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And that's a sobering sobering text. Let me read it. Then I saw a great white throne and him who seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. So everybody's going to ultimately receive justice. For the person that doesn't receive Christ, it's eternal separation from God, but... Many theologians that read this text says that that separation from God is going to be far worse for some people than others because of how bad they've been. Uh, That that the, The books are opened and people are judged according to what they had done. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. That's a sobering passage, and um, that was what was Paul was trying to communicate to the, the Athenians there at Mars Hill. There's a set day of judgment coming, and you need to know Jesus, and you need to know him, and you need to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Uh, The victory in Jesus we sang about, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We were all on death row, all headed for Christless eternity, until Jesus came and gave his life on the cross. And when we put our faith and trust in him, we pass from death to life. That's what we worship him for this morning. That's why we sing victory in Jesus and that's why we need to be, as uh, Paul says, we need to be uh, ambassadors for Christ. What? Sharing the good news. Be reconciled to God. Trust you know Him. I trust that as we f- contemplate this message that God's going to lay a burden on your heart for someone that needs to know Jesus. And that uh, God would, Spirit would move us from not just compassion, but action. Uh, to share the good news. Let's, uh, let's ask Him to do that in our lives this morning. And before we pray this morning, I'm just gonna pause and ask the Spirit of God to, uh, as He spoke to me earlier this morning, uh, Lord, would you lay some soul on my heart and, uh, love that soul through me? And may I do my part in sharing God's truth with this soul. So uh, just take a minute as we pause in quiet reflection and um, ask the Spirit of God to um, bring someone to your mind that uh, we need to be bold enough to share the truth of the gospel with. Lord, may we have listening ears and an open heart to, uh, to whom we need to uh, be that uh, uh, conduit of your love and the gospel with other people. And Lord, help us to remember as you bring someone to our heart's mind and, my, and our, our burden on our heart, that before we talk to people about God, we need to talk to God about people. And so, Lord, may we be praying or whom that person is. Uh, Lord, I pray for my new friend Larry, Lord, that you would even now uh, open up his heart and prepare his heart for uh, hopefully a gospel connection this week. And Lord, I pray that for um, all those that you've placed on our hearts today. Uh, Lord, may we have uh, boldness and wisdom uh, in sharing the gospel. And Lord, we'll thank you that for all that you will do In the coming days, in Jesus' name, amen.